Don't You Want Me by the Human League hits number one in the U.S. on July 1st, 1982. That kicks off the second British invasion. 1983 will be the core year of that event. The charts will start to be peppered with hits by British synth-pop, blue-eyed soul, and post-punk artists. In March 83, top 10 hits from Culture Club, Duran Duran, Musical Youth. Yes, the British Jamaican kid group doing the weed song, Pass the Duchy. In June, we've got David Bowie, Culture Club again, Thomas Dolby, Naked Eyes, Eddie Grant. Yes, the British Guyanese artist doing the cool synth song, Electric Avenue. And Kajagoogoo. Yes, Too Shy. There's no other Kajagoogoo song. But I want to direct you to the huge British group that never made it in the U.S. I'm talking about Bucks Fizz. Basically, the British ABBA, named after the twice as boozy mimosa, one Eurovision in 81. Bobby G, Mike Nolan, The Guys, Cheryl Baker, Jay Austin, The Ladies. 12 British Top 40 hits, including three number ones from 1981 to 86. Zero songs on the U.S. chart. Not a one. Love the Tom Toms all throughout their music. They love Tom Toms. Recorded What's Love Got to Do With It before Tina Turner, but it didn't see the light of day until 2000. Listen to My Camera Never Lies from 1982. Amazing song. Much more to the story. Crazy story. Go listen to Bucks Fizz. America, make it happen. You did it for Kate Bush. Do it for Bucks Fizz. Get them in the top 10 next week. This is Hall of Songs. Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners, to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I'm Tim Malcolm. I'm Chris Jones. Chris, you wanted to say something about Bucks Fizz, I think. I'm only going to say real quickly that I feel like you sold the name of Bucks Fizz way short. After someone who lived in the UK for a little bit, like naming themselves after this particular drink is just like crazy fun. I didn't know what a Bucks Fizz was until I lived in London. And then it was, it was all I heard about. I mean, what the idea is, is you wake up on Christmas morning and you pour yourself like a thimble full of orange juice and then a full glass of Tesco Prosecco <laughs> and then drink 12 of those before you open up a single present on Christmas morning. It's a delightful tradition. It's everything that is delightful about the UK. And it's what leads to like, you know, all out rows in the family in the afternoon. So it, when you are listening to Bucks Fizz, as Tim implores you, also pour yourself up a Bucks Fizz. Love it. Love it. We're, maybe next time we record, I will make myself a Bucks Fizz. How about that? Yeah, I'll get some uh, Tesco Prosecco shipped over to you. <laughs> Fantastic. How, how are you doing? Uh, you, have, you have some shows coming up you're going to go see? Yeah, going to see some shows. Been listening to a lot of music uh, uh, as it is. You know, Fish just wrapped up their spring tour, so I got to check out all those. That was good stuff. Going to see Paul McCartney. I'll uh, report back on that in one of our next episodes. And uh, also uh, the Avet brothers, Frank Turner, Sheer Mag. I got a bunch on the calendar. 
Uh, you went from my least favorite artist of all time to my most favorite artist of all time within about three seconds. So good job, Chris. Do you see what they opened up their uh, last show with? I, I saw that. You could tell the audience. It's good stuff. Uh, While my guitar gently weeps. First time Fish has ever opened with that song. It was a it was a pretty cool version. They were kind of, uh, you know, they've been really messing with their set list a lot, having a good time. You never know what to expect. 30 minutes in in the second set. It was the first time the guitar actually wept for real in the history of that song. So, all right. Hall of Songs. We all know the podcast. We've been doing this since February of 21. We are going back in time to figure out the greatest songs of all time, year by year. Started in 1951. Each episode is a new year going forward. And we pick the 12 songs we think are the best of the year. After telling you those songs and giving you the breakdowns and how we feel about them, you can then go on our website at hallofsongs.com. It is there where you can find a ballot. It is at the bottom of every page on our website. Go there and pick for up, pick to up to tw- 10 songs that you think are the absolute best of the best, that you think are worthy of what we call the Hall of Songs, the Hall of Fame for songs. After a week of voting, we then tabulate the votes and we come back to you with a results show telling you if any songs on the ballot made it to the Hall of Songs. We have two new Hall of Songs members. We announced those a couple of weeks ago. I think it was a week ago. It wasn't that long ago in our most recent recap episode. Chris, what are the two newest members of the Hall of Songs? They are Little Red Corvette by Prince and Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. We're recording this on what would be Prince's 64th birthday. Little Red Corvette is our 63rd inductee to the Hall of Songs. Billie Jean is number 64. So congratulations to both of them. The ballot when you stop listening to this episode, and as long as it's between the dates of June 12th to the 19th, that's when the voting will be open. If you go to the website, you'll see the ballot that has songs from this year, 1983. We also have songs from 82, from 81. I think 80 is gone now. We still have some 79 songs, but we're also going to have songs from our most recent Veterans Committee episode. The Veterans Committee, we pick four songs, at least four songs, or up to four songs, that we think are worthy of the be- of the ballot, but we didn't put in the first time. These are the ones that we didn't think were the top 12 of their year, but we thought they were worthy enough of actually being in the ballot. And those so- Chris, do you know those songs? Do you have them ready for you? I do indeed. They are In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield, Caught Up in You by 38 Special, all from 1981, and then Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye from 1982. We had a really fun Veterans Committee episode. We did it with Chris's wife and had a really great time talking about how some of these songs are very problematic. So go listen to that episode. It was a real joy. Uh, it, it put us in our place, I think, a little bit too. Meg was was wonderful. So uh, go listen to that episode. And then go vote for 38 Special. We're not supposed to tip our hands, but I'm imploring everyone to vote for 38 Special. <laughs> good luck with that, Chris. Good luck. <laughs> Unless there's a contingent in West Virginia that really loves 38 Special. Good luck. All right. 1983, we are here. I am excited for this year. This is one of my favorite years in music. As I've said in the past, the period between 76 and 84, or really more like 78 to 86, I guess, is my favorite period in music history. And 83, right in the middle of that, is chock full of amazing songs, a lot of synth, a lot of pop, a lot of new technologies really coming to life in a different way, a lot of pop sounds from the keyboards and stuff like that. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Chris, what are you talking about with 83? Where, 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 are, we t- where are you taking us here? 
All right, so I have talked ad nauseum about my love of concerts and live music and all that fun stuff, but my first real concert experience was in the fall of 83. Uh, My whole family went to the West Virginia University Coliseum. We saw Alabama. Alabama was huge at the time. It's tough to sort of overstate how big they were, particularly in a place like West Virginia. They were all over the country charts. Uh, We mentioned Mountain Music a couple times on the show. Uh, after the album that had that song, they followed, they followed with uh, The Closer You Get. That album had three number one hits. Uh, they were the first, I believe, uh, artist to win the CMA Entertainer of the Year Award for three straight years from 82 to 84. You know, it's one of the biggest awards in country music. And, uh, and they were just big. But as big as they were, at least on the charts, there was another artist who was having some success, probably more than Alabama's and certainly more on a crossover basis. And that was, of course, Kenny Rogers. He was tearing up the charts and particularly had a couple duets. Early in 83, his cover version of Bob Seger's We've Got Tonight that he recorded with Sheena Easton not only topped the country charts, but it went up to number six on the Hot 100. Then later in the year, of course, he outdid that with Islands in the Stream, a song that was written by the Bee Gees and that he sang with Dolly Parton. That topped both country charts. It actually knocked Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart off the top spot of the Hot 100 and stayed there for two weeks in October 83. Interestingly, Islands in the Stream was actually the 13th song in a 10-year period that ended in 1983 to top both the country charts and the Hot 100. Uh, In addition to artists like Glenn Campbell and John Denver, Kenny Rogers himself uh, topped both charts in late 1980 when he sang Lionel Richie's Lady. You'd think maybe as we are, you know, in the sound scan era and as charts are really accurate now and as we can count sales and uh, streams and that as radio play gets a little bit less important, that would be kind of a regular occurrence. But since Islands in the Stream hit the top spot, it has happened a grand total of one time. It wasn't by, you know, Shania Twain or Garth Brooks or, you know, the country music power couple of Tim McGraw or Faith Hill or even Taylor Swift. No, in 2000, Lone Star became the only band since 1983 to top both charts with Amazed. Uh, That's an anomaly. I don't even know if we can explain that one. And I also can't explain why they were the last one to do it. Uh, Again, I would think that sort of these, the accurate counting and things like that would start to, you know, just as it did for Garth Brooks and the album sale type world would start to make things a little bit more accurate and more likely to have some sort of crossover. But in fact, things have gone, you know, just the opposite. I don't really have a good explanation for why that is. You mentioned MTV as one of the factors. And I think that's a really good observation. I mean, a band like Alabama was making videos, but those were showing up on CMT and TNN and they weren't, uh, you know, airing on MTV and giving them a boost that would carry over to the pop charts. There also were FM radio stations popping up all over the place, including, you know, new country stations. So radio listening could be really siloed and you could just listen to what you wanted. I don't think any one of these things necessarily explains it. Maybe it's just a bit of a coincidence, but it's probably a combination of a bunch of things. I will say this, though. My prediction is we're going to see it happen again soon. As Tim mentioned up top, Kate Bush was just propelled to number eight with a 37-year-old song because of Stranger Things. I, If that show can get a song to number eight, 
I think it's only a matter of time before a TV show, a movie, or even like a commercial or viral video does the same thing for a country song. So stay tuned. I think we'll see a country song coming to the top of the charts sometime soon. You think Alabama will finally have their day? Oh, I wish. That would be great. And then we can all do topless karaoke. If it is, I hope it's uh, love in the first degree. That's the one that deserves it. No, maybe Old Flame. One of those two. Just well, you'll classics. hear none of those songs on Hall of Songs <laughs> because they're from 1982. Come on, Tim. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's. Uh, <laughs> that's true too, I guess. But let's get into 1983. It is time to unveil the nominees for the Hall of Songs from that year, and we start right now. start off our 1983 rendezvous with Eurythmics. Sweet dreams are made of this. So we are very much in 1983, a sound we're going to hear a lot of in this episode, synth. Just a ton of synth keyboards. This is the sound of the year. Yeah, what's wild to me is how big the synth sounds when you listen to this, particularly, you know, get on headphones and as we're going to find out, in fact, this is really, you know, sort of a bedroom type recording. It's not this sort of like major studio production, yet it comes across and delivers that big sound. Eurythmics, Annie Lennox, Dave Stewart, not the 1989 World Series MVP, met in the mid 70s in a restaurant where Stewart worked. They were romantically involved, started a band originally called The Catch, but shortly thereafter, The Tourists. Though they had some success, they were unhappy with band politics, wanted something a bit different. They were on tour in Wagga Wagga, Australia. And they were playing around with a mini synth and decided to become a duo and push the synth-heavy sound. After recording one album, the duo ended up living in Chalk Farm, London, home to the Roundhouse, which is apparently where Chris has seen Frank Turner a bunch of times. They set up a home recording studio, enjoyed the creative freedom and not having to pay studio fees, but they failed to find commercial success. And stress was wearing them down as well. Stewart also suffered a collapsed lung. Lennox had a nervous breakdown. They gave it one more shot. And in 83, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This finally makes them. The title track of the album, which of course is this, released with a striking video featuring Lennox and her bright orange crew cut. It's widely considered one of the early classic videos and helped to ultimately propel the song to the top of the Hot 100. Yeah, this is, uh, what a cool track. What an awesome sound this is, but I can't help but just mention off the top since you said the video and Annie Lennox and her image, her androgynous image. I just can't help but think about Grace Jones from a couple episodes ago and how we're playing with sexuality and image and gender here in the 80s and how how controversial that might have been, but also how transgressive that is. Annie is right away just this very striking image and a fully formed image and really makes Eurythmics sort of this you know great group of the MTV era that is more than just this awesome synth band. Yeah. And I mean, I remember sort of an unease of watching this as a kid. I mean, this was, as I said, during the last episode, I was fully into watching MTV when this was in heavy rotation. 
uh, there was sort of the song is meant to make you feel uneasy, but it's like you sort of, it never lets you sort of get settled. Uh, and it's like lyrically the imagery in the video, it's this really cool. I mean, this is one of those where it's this early example of basically making avant-garde avant-garde art set to music, putting it on MTV and then using that as a platform to launch like a pop song in the pop charts. It's just, a, I mean, as you said, it's transgressive, but it's also done in a way that makes something more popular and not less. In our 82 episode, we led off that episode with a song by another synth pop duo, a man and a woman, Yazoo. Of course, that group, very similar to Eurythmics in a lot of ways, with Alison Moyet taking that Annie Lennox persona. Moyet, much more, I think of a soulful growl kind of vocalist, at least in this version, in the synth pop world. Annie Lennox would, of course, flower into this unbelievable vocalist in time and you know, it has been celebrated the world around for her vocals, but here much more of an icy steel sound, you know, what your rhythmics does best, I think is take the idea of what the music is trying to convey, what the cold synths are trying to convey. And they're able to sort of mirror that in a really perfect way. Whereas Yazoo, I think use the synths as more texture and let Moyer's voice sort of contrast against that quite a bit. So Eurythmics really diving in and doubling down on the sound of the early 80s and doing it to incredible effect. I mean, this is, once you hear the stabbing synth of this song, you know what it is. It is the most one of the most recognizable songs of the entire 80s. Yeah, and I mean, you talked about the lyrics, and I just think it's really cool that there was this sort of idea that they were like, you know, uh, like that they weren't going to make it, that they were struggling to try to break through. And it's like, but yet it sort of comes across like they sort of channeling these lyrics that are sort of about getting what you want, whatever that is. And then they sort of apparently realized that the sort of mo- like sort of the majority of the song was a little bit too dark and added that kind of, you know, uh, hold your head up, keep your head up interlude that, is like that just sort of gives it this little bit of positivity, but it is like, it does sort of convey this mixed feeling to me where it is like, you know, there it's a lot about getting what you want, but it's also with this acknowledgement that you might not be able to get what you want. And it's uh, again, what we've talked about in a lot of, about a lot of these songs that are just great is that it's able to convey that both with the lyrics and musically.
our second nominee from 1983. This is from February of 1983. It is, of course, U2 with Sunday Bloody Sunday. The first U2 song to make it to the Hall of Songs nominee list. Apt, I think before this, you would have had a couple possibilities. I will follow maybe being the biggest, but this makes sense, right? Yeah, I think this makes sense. And, you know, it took them a little bit to find, I think, exactly what it is that they wanted to do. So it kind of makes sense that I think this is when they were finding that, you know, finding out that that path for themselves. So the U2 story, let's dive into it. Why not? Bono, Paul Hewson, The Edge, David Evans, Larry Mullen Jr., drummer, and Adam Clayton, bassist. They first appeared as U2 in March of 78. Later that month, they would win a talent show in Limerick sponsored by Hart Brewery, winning 500 pounds in a recording session. The first session was a bit of a bust. Still a few years before U2 would figure out exactly who they wanted to be, as you just said. 1980, they would take to the studio Steve Lillywhite to record Boy, their first full-length album. Critics loved it, but it struggled to reach a large audience. Their tour in support of Boy, however, was when people began to sit up and take notice. They'd grown from a cover band who largely played punk new wave songs into something different, adopting some classic rock tropes while creating their own distinctive sound. And Bono, of course, classic rock star frontman. Still, it took some time for worldwide fame to come to U2. 81's October debuted in number 11 in the UK, but that was its peak. Clayton said that the band was frustrated and returned to the studio, resolved to come out fighting with the next record. And that record is War, recorded in 1982, released in early 83. The lead single, New Year's Day, was released on New Year's Day, and Sunday Bloody Sunday would follow. And the album would debut at number one in the UK and number 12 in the US. U2 was not yet the biggest band in the world, quote-unquote, but they were on their way. I just love Larry Mullen's drumming on this. Obviously sets the entire tone of the track, that kind of open snare sound. You have all that gated reverb throughout the 80s, especially starting here in 83, but that very propulsive snare, almost like a marching band sound, just really setting the tone for this. And what the U2 sound would be throughout the 80s, this very sort of aggressive frontline kind of a sound. This is a band that wants to talk about the big ideas and the sound really matches that. Yeah. So I absolutely agree on that drumming. I love the sound of this song and I love uh, Bono's delivery uh, in this version. I will say this is my potential hot take is that I've talked a lot about, you know, when the the songs that sort of succeed when they can, when the artist, le- you know, wears their heart on their sleeve and just sort of leaves it out there. I feel like they sort of uh, like decided to like, just sort of, pull up a little bit here and not go all the way. It's, uh, you know, the lyrics here, there are references to Bloody Sunday in 1972 and Bloody Sunday in 1920, but they sort of wrote this as a political song after being, uh, after dropping out of a St. Patrick's Day parade in New York, but they didn't want to push it too far. And they were really careful about like trying not to do anything that would cause too much ire from you know, the other side politically that would get, that would raise sort of too many eyebrows and sort of call them out as an overtly political band. And it's why I think there's like parts, particularly in the middle where it almost like rings a little bit hollow where it's not quite sort of, you know, going all the way. And that's to me, it's sort of, it's interesting to listen to it many, many times because especially with the passionate delivery from Bono and sort of the pulsing, you know, the the pulsing drums and then like Edge's guitar riff that it just doesn't, that they are willing to pull punches.
It's funny that you mentioned that they kind of held back a little bit politically. It makes me think about Paul McCartney, who, after Sunday Bloody Sunday, released a song, Give Ireland Back to the Irish, which is sort of one of those half-step kind of a songs. He wants to say something politically, but he's the biggest pop star in the world and doesn't quite want to show himself too much. Still, the BBC banned it. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's one of those things where you're like, eh, it's, it's, you do this, but that's still going to happen, you know? Um, it's interesting to me to think about you two on the timeline here because we have been building up with all the synth pop and the British new wave sound. And now we have in the US the British new wave dance sound and, or excuse me, the new wave dance sound. And American artists are starting to adopt the British sounds and create something different with that. U2 doesn't sound like any of that. They, of course, sound like a new wave band early on. I Will Follow kind of has more of a new wave sound to it. This is much more of a classic rock sound. But where do you put them? What exactly are they in the scope of even the 80s? Because there really aren't many artists like them. No, and I mean, this is we're getting to the era where they are kind of outliers to be these guitar rock bands that are not, you know, on the heavy metal edge of things. Yeah. They're not like really Zeppelin. Sort of, yeah. It's like sort of these throwback sort of classic rock bands. And, and you're right. There's just, you know, it's on one hand, those types of bands are way overrepresented in, you know, quote unquote rock and roll music. But on the other hand, they start to become, you know, fewer and farther between as you get into the eighties where there's all these new sounds that are coming in and to have it, it's, they managed to walk this really interesting tightrope, I think, between sounding like something brand new. Like there's nothing like you when you hear a U2 song, you know that it's U2 while also being a throwback. And uh, and I'm with you. It's really tough to place them. And it's like you listen to this song. And if you were just to sort of take it, especially like ignoring Bono's lyrics just for a minute, like just to play it, like it could sound like something that came from. 10 years earlier or even 10 years later it just sort of exists in this sort of classic rock uh you know frame it'll be fascinating to talk about you two as we go forward i'm sure there'll be at least a few more you two songs we will mention on this podcast so true funny how it seems always in time but never in line for dreams head over heels when toe to toe this is the sound of my soul This is the sound I bought a ticket to the world But now I've come back again Let's stay over in the British Isles for this one. One of my absolute favorites. This is Spandau Ballet with True. from March of 1983. This is essentially the beginning of the new romantic sound, at least becoming popular. This is a genre that did start a little bit before this, kind of grew out of David Bowie and Roxy Music and some of that glam stuff. But MTV really 
was the vehicle that New Romantics needed to become a real style. This very sh- shiny, sort of sophisticated brand of pop music that favored pianos a little bit more and was just a little bit softer and smoother. Yeah, and you could also introduce yourself so well to like to new audiences. Like, like I said, I think I one of the things that is sort of a hallmark to me about this era of MTV was just being able to immediately know who the artist was, what the name of the song was, and what album it was on, and things that you didn't always get from the radio. So when you're trying to break through into a new place, that sort of thing I think is invaluable. That it's like you see that and you're like, oh, I like this band. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go buy their tape. So Spandau Ballet grew out of the post-punk scene in the Islington area of North London, home to Arsenal Football Club. Late 70s, the band's primary lineup was Gary Kemp on guitar, synthesizer, and vocals, along with being the primary songwriter. His brother Martin Kemp on bass, vocalist Tony Hadley, saxophonist Steve Norman, and drummer John Keeble. In 79, there was a lot of underground buzz surrounding the group, and they played several secret shows throughout London. Those shows created enough of a stir to lead to a bidding war between several UK record companies. They ended up signing with Chrysalis, releasing Journeys to Glory in 81 and Diamond in 82. Both were reasonably successful in the UK and, while less so in the US, had some songs that charted particularly on the dance charts. Looking for a bigger smash, they turned to UK producers Tony Swan and Steve Jolly. They created a smoother, more radio-friendly pop sound for the next album, True. They also brought in saxophonist Steve Norman for several of the tracks. The title track was a worldwide hit, though it peaked at number four on the Hot 100. It was a number one in several countries. Kemp wrote the song when he was 22 and dating an 18-year-old. Yes, that's right. In his words, it's the idea of love that he had at the time and the lyric about a thrill in my head and a pill in my tongue and take your seaside arms. You know, all that was really inspired by young love. And it was also inspired by Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. He also wanted to write something like Let's Stay Together. And that's a Hall of Songs inductee, by the way. There's also that Marvin Gaye little nod that he has in one of the verses. So there's a lot of these nods to soul music, American soul music. And we've talked about the relationship between American soul and British New Wave and British music and even Jamaican. And there's all these connections that you have. But this is really the beginning of what will really turn into the Sophistapop movement, where you have these UK artists who are very blatantly doing soul songs to try to sound like late 60s and early 70s American soul. Yeah, and I mean, it's topped off by that just absolutely great sax solo. But that's sort of, again, throwing this, you know, this American sort of soul uh, style into the song. And I know talked about this like several episodes ago where there's sort of sometimes you have that line between sort of you know appropriation and appreciation uh it's like this song to me seems like it is a great example of appreciation where it is Mm -hmm. taking things from sort of american soul and putting them into a new sound it's not sort of in no way are they trying to come across like sort of you know black american soul artists they're just sort of using some of those sounds in a way to make their own thing um and i think they do it well but i could i could 
probably see how some people might not think that's the case. Yeah, there are a few elements in this song that recall 60s and 70s American soul music, R&B, even 50s stuff, from the Motown-esque guitar chanks to the woozy, doo-wop-inspired vocals. You could call them doo-wop-inspired. But it all does add up, as you said, to this really beautifully smooth, elegant, very 80s sound. I absolutely love this song. Every time I listen to it, I find something new to appreciate about it. it. There's a lot of layers to it. There are a lot of changes to it. I love the fact that the bridge kind of does this build up. And then there's just this like silence for like two or three seconds before they break back in with the hushed chorus vocals that we talked about with Rosalita by Bruce Springsteen, how bold that is of a move to do, especially when you're not well known in a lot of places like America. But boy, do they pull that off. This is such a great vibe, but it's also a beautiful pop song. And it's over five minutes. They do a lot in five minutes, and it still sounds like a very tight pop song. How does it feel? Fourth nominee, making their sort of first appearance on Hall of Songs, New Order from March of 1983 with Blue Monday. Are we going to have an American artist in this episode? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, this is this is the year, man. So, yeah, we talked about Joy Division a couple episodes ago, or 1980 episode. We noted that after Ian Curtis's death, the remaining members would reform as New Order in 1981. The first album, Movement, largely picked up where Joy Division left off, but while spending some time in New York City, they were exposed to the post-disco, freestyle, and electronic scenes. They channeled their energy into a new Manchester nightclub, the Hacienda, where they largely funded. Upon opening, the club played nearly 23-minute instrumental piece written by Bernard Sumner and Stephen Morris titled Prime 586. The elements of Prime 586 would find their way into this, Blue Monday. And several tracks that would find their way onto 83's Power, Corruption, and Lies. By this time, the old dark sound had largely made way for a new sound, heavily influenced by Giorgio Moroder and Kraftwerk, along with many of the British New Wave bands who were gaining in popularity. So, yeah, they use an Oberheim DMX drum machine for the percussion, and it's been said that they basically lifted the percussion sound from a Donna Summer B-side. So you have that influence. You also have a bass line, which is really great lifted from an Enrico Morricone uh, track. So they're taking from this like Italian soundtrack, spaghetti Western sound, and they're fusing that with disco post-disco dance. And they're adding just a little bit of that new wave element that they brought in themselves. This is an entirely new sound for Britain, but it's also going to be a sound that in time evolves into really the prevailing dance sound of the eighties. Yeah. I mean, I think you could, tell a lot of the story of 
sort of rock pop music from the mid seventies to the mid eighties, just by listening to joy division and new order, but it doesn't quite work in order. You know, it's like, this is a throwback to some of the disco stuff while also setting things forward. When you have the joy division sound, you have a little bit more of the angsty post pop music. Uh, I mean, I absolutely love new order. Uh, and I think that like, this is sort of one of those absolutely classic tracks, but it is so not because it's, completely doing something new but because it is taking that sort of in a relative sense that older true disco sound building on it and then creating this as you said new dance sound that's going to become something that underlies just so many you know mid to late 80s hits it's funny we've had multiple people on this podcast talk about how great this song was, how this was a necessity if we're going to talk about the greatest songs of all time. In fact, in our last episode, Andrew Unterberger, I asked him from Billboard about 83 and if there were any songs that he thought had to be on this list and the first song he said was Blue Monday. He said it was one of his favorite songs of all time. That seems to be a prevailing thought among rock critics and people who just love a lot of music. So, there's something to this and I think part of it is like you said, you're taking some old elements, but you're doing something a little different with them, and you are pointing the way to a direction that is very forward-thinking. I love the percussion of this track because you have at its surface this very basic four-on-the-floor, four-four beat that bum, 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 that basically goes throughout the song. There is one of the great things also is that you have this great buildup for about a minute and a half, and then it just stops. And then it builds up again to the first verse. So it's a really cool track that plays with your mind a little bit. But you had that 4-4 four, four beat. And then they just keep adding different percussive layers on top of that. And then they add different synth layers on top of that. There's a sound that almost sounds like horns blaring at you. And there's little keyboard things. And there's droning synth beds. And it's basically the entire history of the keyboard that we've been talking about over the past 10 years is summed up very nicely in this one track. Yeah, and I think what's also really cool about that is that they take is the lyrics and what they do with the lyrics here, where it's like, you know, again, sort of this throwback to these disco sounds and these, a lot of the Marauder songs were built on these sort of, you know, overtly sexual lyrics that themselves didn't have necessarily a ton of depth to them, but that was kind of the idea. And here you've got something going on. And I think this is a really interesting theme throughout all of the 83 is there's like these radically different lyrics. Some of them are completely on their face. You know what they're talking about. Some of them are intentionally sort of opaque. Uh, and then some of them are just complete like gobbledygook as we'll get to. But uh, this is one where I think it is, it's like, you know, you can make of it what you will in a way. I've always sort of heard this as being about sort of like a failed relationship or sort of recovering from a breakup or something like that. But you could like, you critics when you look at it have read so many things into it even things like you know as dark as child abuse or uh or things about people trying to recover from drug addiction 
Uh, and it's like there's something going on beneath the surface here that sort of, you know, throws it in contrast to some of the, I don't want to say the lighter disco songs, but it's sort of the ones that are a little bit more upfront about what they're doing as far as, you know, singing about sex while playing a song that's on the, you know, that's meant to be listened to on the dance floor. It's the mark of a great song. Good bones, too. Even though this is heavily synthesized and electronic and drum machined out, this has great bones. All right, we finally come to America, and boy, what an arrival. The Isley Brothers are back on the podcast. Yes, we have Quiet Storm. Hmm, Let's get into the Quiet Storm, my friends. Between the Sheets, our fifth nominee from 1983. Yeah, so this is one I was sort of alluding to with uh, lyrics that you can pretty much understand what's going on. No, please tell me, Chris. What are they talking about in Between the Sheets? <laughs> All right. So the Isley Brothers, we last heard from them in 73. That lady, that was a Hall of Songs nominee through the Hall Veterans Committee. That lady lifted the group to the Hot 100's top 10 for the second time ever. The first time was It's Your Thing. Though the boys were always putting out R&B smashes. More R&B pop crossover hits came after... 1973 with hits like fight the power and for the love for you and top 40 scrapers as well, like living in the life and don't say goodnight. It's time for love. The Isleys always had a knack for romance, but the early eighties showed them stripping away some of the more groove based funk for a smoother, silkier sound that other R and B acts at the time were migrating toward their fair grouped into the radio format subgenre quiet storm. Or I should say quiet storm. Radio DJ Melvin Lindsay created the format and named it after Smokey Robinson's 1975 song, Quiet Storm. So you could say that song kind of started the whole thing. As a radio format, Quiet Storm remains intact today, typically representing late night blocks of programming on black radio stations. And the definition is broader, essentially any sexy R&B song ever. As a genre, Quiet Storm is pretty much a smoothed out, sexier progeny of Philly Soul, whereas the softer fare of Philly Soul, say Me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul, rely on Philly standbys like strings and horns. Quiet Storm is more keyboards and synthesizers, sometimes drum machines, all the time extremely seductive. The best way to define a song is Quiet Storm. If the moment the song begins, you're doing the smoldering oh baby face that Maya Rudolph does in the Dick in the Box video, it's probably a Quiet Storm song. This was written by Ennier and Marvin Isley and Chris Jasper as a response to Marvin Gaye's sexual healing, which we nominated in our recent Veterans Committee episode. Another reason that song is so influential. The Isleys fully embraced drum machines on this one, just like Marvin did. They also embraced the synths. They also embraced the sex, the sound of the bass and the synths together at times, or the keyboards and the and the bass together at times. Gorgeous, beautiful sound. I, I love this track. 
Yeah, I mean, this is something I've said about a, a, a few songs, uh, particularly in recent years, is that there's some that songs that when you hear them, they almost sound like uh, cliches. But then when you go back and sort of like dig into the history, you realize that they're the reason why things are cliched. And this is one mm-hmm. of those. Like, this is absolutely, uh, you know, it is this epitome of the sort of the, the quiet storm genre or this sort of these slow sexy r&b songs that are going to go on and be done you know countless times throughout the 80s although very few times as well as this yeah and like i just mentioned the combination of the keyboard and the bass together that very lugubrious bass sound kind of syrupy bass sound that's a synthesized bass probably a roland tr303 it is just perfect indisputably sexy We'll probably come back to that instrument, actually. And can we just mention how great the Isleys really are? I mean, we've we've had this podcast going since 1951. We've been talking about music since 1951, and they were almost in the very beginning. We had them in 1959 with Shout. That's a Hall of Songs inductee. We brought them back in the 70s. We could have brought them back in the 60s. They had a couple big hits then. These guys always reinventing themselves as R&B changes, but they're also the group that changes R&B a lot of times. It's really amazing how they were always on the forefront of the genre. And while they were on the forefront, actually doing the best work of anybody at that time. This is probably, well, this is the first great Quiet Storm song. Is it the quintessential Quiet Storm song? Miss Anita Baker might have something to say about that. I don't know, but this is right there. And it's just amazing how the Isleys are able to evolve and do it at the top of the game. Making love between the sheets. Enough of this singing. Let's make love. All right, so we have the Isley Brothers and George Jones, who have lived on for about however many years we've been doing this. Uh, but like, uh, you know, as you said, this song continues to live on, and it does so not just in its sort of uh, influence directly, but also in samples. I mean, this is one that shows up a ton as a sampled song. Yeah, I mean, the most famous sample of Between the Sheets is when Notorious B.I.G., well, Diddy did the sample, but it's for Notorious B.I.G.'s Big Papa that very that that the big melody of between the sheets is used for the sample there that very syrupy sound matching a song all about sex that biggie just absolutely kills also sampled on jay-z's ignorance shit that's from his american gangster album and they use the really cool bridge of between the sheets for the sample there and that is a really great usage because it's such a change up and it just set, you get the sense of Big Papa when you listen to it, and then you get the sense of Between the Sheets, but it becomes its own song enti- its own song entirely. Brilliant. This song lives on in so many permutations. It'll probably live on forever, just in different samples. And now for something very different. We're staying in the U.S., but we're moving to the Midwest. 
This is the Violent Femmes with Blister in the Sun from April 1983. that Milwaukee means the good land in Algonquin. Thank you, Alice Cooper. All right. Violent Femmes, the original makeup of the Milwaukee band, the Violent Femmes, Brian Ritchie on bass and Victor DeLorenzo on drums. They added vocalist Gordon Gano and became a full-fledged trio. Legend has it that they were discovered by James Honeyman Scott of the Pretenders, who heard them busking in front of Milwaukee's Oriental Theater in August of 81. And Chrissy Heinen Company asked them to play a short acoustic set before the scheduled opener. Although he was the last one added to the band, Gano quickly became the band's chief songwriter and de facto leader. The band was signed to Slash Records and recorded for their self-titled debut in July of 82. The great Steve Huey of AllMusic.com said that the album was, quote, one of the most distinctive records of the early alternative movement and an enduring cult classic, close quote. He's a smart guy. The song proves to be an early example of the growing alternative genre as an alternative to album-oriented rock, which by this time had become mostly hit songs by bands like Journey and Foreigner. It's also symbolic as part of the beginning of college rock. By the late 70s and early 80s, college radio stations were getting more into music programming, and the students in charge were championing what wasn't on the radio already. So there was new wave, post-punk, and the pseudo-combination of those things with a more folkier, stripped-down aesthetic. To me, this kind of has a lot of garage rock influence into it. That DIY sort of, I don't give a crap sort of mentality. That said, it's 1983. This song's a very crisp and clean produced song. It's intentional, but it's a great sound. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the college rock sound to it. This to me is the epitome of college rock. Like when I was getting ready to go to college, I certainly thought I would be able to find a radio station, turn it on, and everything would sound like the Violent Femmes. And it's the <laughs> sort of like garage rock alternative sound. It's like the Violent Femmes and the Replacements are the two bands that sort of epitomize that to me. Oh, um, REM. REM, yeah. But, but I guess by the time I was off to college, REM was like not the biggest band in the world, but probably number two. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but no, I mean, it's such a great sound. And uh, I mean, what I. I what I sort of find fascinating about a song like this is that it lives on, you know, sort of eternally. Like I, like, I, you know, people my age listen to this in high school. You're a couple of years younger than me. I'm sure you listen to this in high school. It's like, this will come around. Everybody's going to sort of listen to this, but it never charted. You know, there's like no chart history for this. It's this kind of thing that it like just sort of existed slightly under the radar, selling a boatload of copies, but only because it sort of comes in these waves. Like maybe it'll pop up in a movie or a TV show and it'll launch another wave. And then somebody will, you know, then somebody's older brother plays it for him or somebody's older sister plays it for him. And it's like, then they go grab it or they go download it. It just sort of uh, like this sort of how this like, you know, small band from Milwaukee released this thing and that lives on and will still be among the most, you know, downloaded, streamed, whatever songs in 1983 next year is just to me really amazing and sort of a, a credit to how timeless the sound is. It's a damn shame that Big Star didn't have the kind of career that Violent Femmes had, where they had this great song or two or three songs. I mean, that first album, by the way, is terrific. Gone Baby Gone's on there. There's some really great tracks on that album. Big Star didn't have that kind of success. They didn't get the sort of promotional heft that 
other bands would in the 80s. Not that Violent Femmes got huge promotional half, you know, 82, 83, but nevertheless, this is one of those songs where I think it influences a lot of things that are going to come in the 90s. A lot of those alternative and sort of post grunge groups of the 90s who are trying to figure out their sound are going to go back to this and the dynamics of this one too. This is one of the very few songs we've had on Hall of Songs where there's a real shift in the sound dynamics and the volume dynamics. It starts out kind of soft. It gets really loud and gets really into it. And then it just gets super soft in the sort of latter half of the song before it comes back up in this big crunch at the end. Let me go on like I blister in that song. Let me go on. Big hands, I know you're the one. And so a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, Anthony Kaleo, who is a host of World Cafe, he put on Twitter a sort of a sound profile, uh, something that you would read on, you know, any sort of audio production software. And he was trying to make people guess what this song was that had this soft and then very loud sound. And then it would stop and get very soft and then get loud at the end. And he would give a couple hints like it's from the eighties. It's a short song. And finally it just got, I mean, it, it like the light bulb blinked and I was like, Oh my God, this is blister in the sun. And that's very unique. There are a lot of songs in the late eighties and early nineties that would be like this, that soft and then loud and then soft and then loud kind of thing. This is really the first one that really does do that at a, at a, at least at a level that is it's popular and people know about it. So very influential for that reason. Yeah. And again, coming back to the lyrics on this one, you know, as a high school kid, everyone always said this was a song that was about masturbation. In fact, Geno has been asked several times about it and he says, it's really kind of not about one thing in particular, but to the extent it's about something, it's about drugs, drug addiction. It's really sort of a meta song about kind of like self-loathing. And it's like, it's one of those songs. I mean, it's, it's a fun song to kind of listen to and dance to, but if you really dive into the lyrics, it's a tough listen. I mean, because there really is somebody who's sort of reckoning with not being a very good person and struggling and getting over some things. And it's one that, you know, it, as we've talked about a lot of songs, it doesn't completely match the fun, upbeat part of the song. Um, and again, I, I, I think there it's intentionally sort of left in a way where it's not supposed to be too overbearing. It's not being preachy or anything like that. It's just there's there's some darkness underneath there. All right, so that's Blister in the Sun by Violent Femmes, and that is our sixth nominee for the Hall of Songs from 1983. We're going to take a quick break and get into some plugs. Maybe this is the time where you get a drink, go to the bathroom, still listen to the podcast. Come on, we got things to talk about here. So we had a recent bonus episode just not too long ago. We brought in Andrew Unterberger of Billboard to talk about the Hall of Songs, just basically get a sense of what we're doing with this experiment and go over the list of the 64 songs that are in the Hall of Songs. Chris, did you get a chance to listen to that episode in full? Because I know you weren't there for half of it. I did. Very enjoyable. Any thoughts yeah. about what Andrew and I were talking about? Uh, you know, I it's really great to hear sort of an outside voice and to hear sort of, uh, you know, like, because there's really, to me, two things that are sort of going on. There's sort of the songs that we're bringing up for nomination, and there are the songs that are getting voted on. And they're two really distinct 
even in my own head, they're two really distinct processes. So it's interesting to hear sort of, you know, from the outside, when you're just sort of taking a look at the songs that have been voted in and how that I think affects sort of the, the thought process of the, you know, of the project as a whole, but it was just great to, you know, it was fun to talk to him when I was able to get on. And uh, I mean, just really interesting to hear that sort of very, I'd say constructive criticism is probably the best way to put it of the, of the sort of, of what we've been doing as a whole. Yeah. So go listen to that. It's wherever you find podcasts. We're on Apple podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Amazon. We are everywhere. If you're listening to the podcast right now, you obviously don't know, you know where to find us, right? But I'm saying this because you should tell people that you know about us, let them know about our podcast, spread the word because we want to get some more listeners. We want to build up some notoriety. We want to be famous with this thing. Come on guys. We will have more special guests on this podcast very soon. I'm not going to say who yet, but I think we'll get more constructive criticism over the next few months. So get ready for that, listeners. We also have a sister podcast called Modern Songs. In our most recent episode, we talked about Diana Ross and Tame Impala. Finally, together at last, they have a new song out called Turn Up the Sunshine. It's from Minions to the Rise of Gru, or is it Minions the Rise of Gru? I don't know. It's just Chris, Minions you... the Rise of Gru. I will give a full review after I see it on opening day. On our other podcast, Chris reviews the movies. But we talk about that song. We talk about some Tame Impala. Go check out in the most recent episode of Modern Songs. That is out now. We have a new episode coming up very soon as well. So go check out Modern Songs wherever you find podcasts as well. All right, let's fall back into the podcast. We have a massive smash coming up here with number seven. And here's our seventh nominee from 1983 and the third police nominee, probably the last one. It is, of course, Every Breath You Take. Another song I was undoubtedly introduced to through MTV. Remember, I don't even want to say I was haunted by this video, but this was one of those that it like stuck with you when you weren't sitting in front of the TV. Uh, a great video directed by our old friends, Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream of 10CC. They leave that band. They go on their own. They create a bunch of wacky albums. I have a couple of them. And they start directing music videos, including this one. And it is an incredible video. So the police, what are they doing in 1983? Well, after 81's Ghost in the Machine, the band's members went their separate ways for a bit. Sting turned toward acting, starring in Brimstone and Treacle, based on a 1978 play about a British couple devastated by a hit-and-run incident that injured their daughter. He would follow that with a major role in the first version of Dune. Stuart Copeland was also involved in movies, writing the score for the Francis Ford Coppola film Rumblefish. But they returned to the studio to record what would become their biggest album, one that would lead them to being dubbed the biggest band in the world, 1983's Synchronicity. Though that success did not come without a cost. The recording sessions, once again produced by the hottest name of the time, Hugh Padgham, 
were filled with fights about the songs, their production, and the future of the band. Ultimately, much of the album was pieced together from separately recorded contributions, so they did not have to be in the studio at the same time. Much of the time, Synchronicity simply sounds kind of like a Sting album. This was written by Sting, who at the time was going through some things, primarily having an affair with his wife's best friend, Trudy Styler, who he would marry and is still with today. The song, of course, as everybody knows now, is about a guy way too creepy about a woman, just obsessed with her. The police are, again, one of my favorite artists of all time, right after the Beatles. They make very interesting pop songs. Nothing they ever really do is simple. It's all different kinds of chord changes, jazz chords, different drum patterns that change up from here to there and everywhere. They're always trying to do something more methodical, more educational within their music. But this is probably the simplest thing they do with maybe an exception or two, but more avant-garde simple. This is just simple pop. Not a lot of crazy chord changes, not a lot of crazy instrumental sort of left turns, but. I think this is just so perfectly executed. It is a band putting on a masterclass in songwriting and song performance. It was the biggest song of 1983. It probably remains to this day one of the five or ten most recognizable songs of the 1980s. Undeniably shows how great the police were as a band that could actually just write a great pop song. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, this is one that it it's your point about it being sort of a little bit more simple maybe than the other police songs. That's, you know, not doing it justice, but I get that. It, but it is, it is a song that's built around the lyrics, but it, there's so many of these songs that are, I guess, sort of misunderstood lyrics in a way. I mean, this one, you don't have to listen to too very, like very often to be like, all right, this is like a creepy stalker guy. Right. But there's also like the really easy, sort of listening to it, that it almost comes across like slightly romantic at the first listen. And uh, I don't know, there's something really clever to me about writing this sort of creepy song where it doesn't come out and say, all right, I'm being your creep, right? It comes across and it basically is a first person point of view from the guy who's being a creep and sort of trust you to get that that's what he's conveying. Well, Impact is one of the things that we grade songs on. And talking about Impact, there are a couple covers of this song, like right away in 1983, country covers that misread the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, there's this one by Rich Landers, which is something. But then you've got to hear, there's a cover by a band, Mason Dixon, that basically takes it as like, it adds this like Texas swing to it. I listened to it a couple <laughs> times and this. It is... It is cringeworthy from like note three. And if you listen to it all the way through, you definitely get the idea that the guy who is delivering the lead vocals here thinks that it is like pure romanticism and that he is delivering this from like this place of love. And it is, I mean, again, it's like, it would be funny if it wasn't so cringeworthy, but it's just, it's, it's creepy.
Now, if you ask a lot of police fans, they probably won't say this is among their favorite tracks. Most police fans will tell you that Synchronicity might even be their least favorite album. I, I It's hard for me to pick a favorite police album, but I don't know if this would be the least favorite. I really love Synchronicity for the fact that they just decided to make this polished, highly produced, and very slick pop rock album that works on a lot of levels and still has some very sophisticated songs. Songs like King of Pain and Wrapped Around Your Finger and the title track and the second part of the title track, which are all very weird pop rock songs that kind of feel out of place in 83, but also fit in 83. This one is really the the ultimate in that, in that it is misconstrued in so many different ways, but it also feels very of the time and has that great darkness to it. There's a lot of great instrumental moments in this song that are really fun. You have Stuart Copeland, who is very stilted in his drumming here. One of the only times in the history of the police that he doesn't get to do a lot of stuff with the hi hat and stuff like that, but he still has this crisp and very in the pocket sound. Then you have Andy Summers, unbelievable guitar lick that sets the entire tone of the song. And it's interesting to hear once you hear this song about a million times, like I have, Every time he plays his lick, you hear that sort of feedback at the back end, and it goes on throughout the song. It's almost like a bird outside the window chirping. Kind of adds to the loneliness of the narrator, who is a creep, but is also this very lonely guy, as you can tell. And then onto the narrator, Sting's vocal. This is one of his best vocals ever. He's not an amazing vocalist or anything, but he has this ability to emote when he really wants to. Police songs are very not, they're not very emotional. They don't really resonate in that kind of way, but this one does. And it's because Sting's vocal is this plaintive, a little creepy, a little soft, but very, he, he just follows through. And you get all that sort of pain through the vocal. Uh, it's an astonishing performance. nominee this is hollow songs inductees talking heads with june of 1983's this must be the place naive melody What is it? Six years ago, they're doing Psycho Killer. And here is a song about love. Just a very sweet love song. <laughs> what a He's band. He's moving on. He's gotten soft. <laughs> Someone lock up David Byrne. Talking Heads. Making a return to the list after scoring an induction with 1980s Once in a Lifetime. Their early career was extremely prolific, basically releasing four highly appraised albums in four years. After that, they needed a break, during which Chris France and Tina Weymouth formed Tom Tom Club, influential group in themselves. 
They did release a live album. The name of this band is Talking Heads. They did a big US tour on the back of that. They also said goodbye to Brian Eno before returning to the studio to record the album Speaking in Tongues, which would come out on June 1st of 83. The album was a mixture of Eno-influenced art pop with funkier sounds, Afrobeat, and gospel thrown in. The critics loved it, and it was also their biggest commercial hit. Burning Down the House, the lead single from the album, would go on to be the band's only Hot 100 Top 10 track, owing some of its success to a striking video. Now, this track, along with the video, was released as the second single in November. Despite following Burning Down the House, it didn't catch on at the time, but to many, it remains the album's most enduring track. And maybe part of that is because of its placement in Stop Making Sense, the incredible concert movie that Jonathan Demme does. What is it? 1986, I believe, is that? Or maybe it's 84. It's, just, it's not that long after this. Yeah, shortly after. I think it's 84. Uh, and the video for that with this great house set up behind David Byrne as he's singing uh, and just giving this really cool vocal. And, and he's, I think he's doing his arm stuff and all that. Like, it's a great, great performance. And this track really hasn't. I mean, it's one of those special good bone songs that, you know, can take on so many different lives. Yeah. I mean, we actually played this at our wedding. Uh, but we played the Sean Colvin version of it, uh, you know, sort of during the like right post ceremony. And it is, you know, it it has those great bones and it sort of has this sort of life to it that a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, this is an absolutely incredible album and all these songs are so good. But it's interesting, again, sort of like, you know, Violent Femmes, Blister in the Sun to have these songs that sort of live on and take on a life of their own well after when they're initially released. I mean, unlike that, this one was released. It was on the charts, but it wasn't one that was, you know, you know, burning up the charts that was, you know, making a lot of year end lists at the time. It's one that sort of has grown on people. You know, lyrically, this is one of those great examples of a song that says, I love you without really saying, I love you. I mean, he talks about love quite a bit in this song, but there's a lot of different lines that David gives that hints at being in love, but says it in a different way. I guess I must be having fun. I guess this must be the place, this idea of home where you're been looking for something your entire life that you can call yours and you could be comfortable and safe in and finding that in another person potentially. And being able to say that through song is a really special thing. And he does that in a really special way here. Also, the less we say about it, the better. Make it up as we go along. That's what you want. That's what. That's exactly what you want in a long-lasting relationship that is your entire life. You want to feel that sense of, Anything can happen. We'll make it up. We don't have to talk about it. This is life. And we both love our own selves within that life. And we don't care what we do. We just love each other. What a sentiment. I mean, this is one of those that, you know, put the lyrics on the wall in your house and you would think that uh, this amazing poet wrote it. So it's, it's just a wonderful lyric sheet. Yeah. And I mean, the naive melody name came from before the song actually had final lyrics. So it was they sort of had a tune. They were working on it. Generally knew what it was going to be about, but it was called, you know, naive melody. But uh, once it was done, they liked it enough that they decided to keep it as the parenthetical, even though it's never you know said in the song. They just thought that that works, which I think goes with exactly what you're saying, that there is this sort of, you know, wistfulness and wishfulness to it that work together perfectly. And it is a sort of, you know, flip side to the song that was inducted once in a lifetime where it's very much based in this like sarcasm and irony and wry humor. And 
it, this is very much one with, you know, once in a lifetime, I think comes from a place of, you know, I, I don't want this to come across overly negative, but it kind of comes across as sort of like this, you know, wiseness or being sort of like smart enough to know what's going on. And this is one where it's, it sort of has that sort of funny thing where it's like knowingly falling into something that might be stupid, you know, just sort of this idea of falling in love in this naive way. That's why, you know, it was, it's the lyrics here, Burns lyrics are why it was one of our wedding songs. And uh, it just, you know, it, it, it is just sort of an eternal, great, uh, beautifully written pop song. And just to cap it off, the arrangement here, I love how there are a lot of songs like this, especially this year, where it starts this kernel of a thought. And there's this building of layers and layers and layers of sounds like Blue Monday. There'll be another song coming up that kind of builds some layers as well. I love that idea where you're building to this something that is really full and whole when you start with this very simple idea. It kind of mirrors what the song is about itself and the fact that you have a percussion bed that's very simple. These are simple drum patterns here. I feel like they're getting a page from maybe Good Times by Chic. You know, we, we've gone back to basically very basic drum pa- patterns after the early and mid-70s were littered with a lot of these cool drum patterns. We're, we're back to this very simple sound. All right, let's go for our ninth nominee from 1983 to New York City and a seminal track in modern dance and the quintessential freestyle jam. This is Shannon with Let the Music Play. I would be curious of all the songs we've nominated uh, sort of this, I don't know exactly how to word this, but the idea of if you just wrote them down, how many people know exactly what the song is in their head. And then, you know, versus the ones that they don't like every breath you take by the police, everything, a single person who like just sees that written on a list knows exactly what that is. This is one where I'm willing to take a guess that a lot of people see, let the music play by Shannon and don't necessarily no. Oh yeah, that's that song. And then as soon as, I mean, it's two seconds in and you're like, aha, yes, it's this song. <laughs> that's the one that like, you know, was going to like light up the rest of the eighties. I think we're going to talk about perception with this song just in a little bit here. Brenda Shannon Green was born in Washington, D.C. in 58. She was both into singing and dancing early on, studied both as a kid. For college, she went to New York and enrolled in York College and also began performing as part of the New York City Jazz Ensemble. While singing in her cousin's recording studio, she was discovered by Quinton Hicks, who got her in front of producers Mark Leggett and Chris Barbosa for an audition. Barbosa, a New Yorker who was into hip-hop culture and the music of Africa Bombada, was highly 
influenced by that artist, Electro Funk, primarily the Hall of Songs nominee, Planet Rock. Leggett and Barbosa liked Green and thought she could lay down a vocal for a track introduced to her called Fire and Ice that was written by Barbosa. Fire and Ice took massive inspiration from Planet Rock with a Roland TR-808 backbeat and layers of synths, but added the Roland TB-303 bass synth, we talked about that, and added gated reverb to keep the drums from overpowering each other, a la Hugh Pagem, plus some Latin percussion textures via the syncopation on the kick drum, something Barbosa said he got from his Puerto Rican upbringing. On top of that, unlike Planet Rock, it's a more structured pop song. The album version and single coming in at around 3.30 with Shannon's vocal guiding us through the melody. Robbie Kilgore does the synth programming and Ed Chisholm provides the lyrics about an anxious night on the dance floor. Though Shannon claims it was Chisholm's sister and Godwin who wrote the words. Either way, it would be a smash across New York and soon America, and it would result in Shannon's debut album of the same name and even more, the birth of freestyle, the DJ-driven genre of electronics made for the dance floor with a definite Latin bend and typically female singers taking lead vocals. I will tell you that I could not believe this song came out in 1983. I always thought this song was like 1987 or 8, and I think part of it is because Growing up in Philadelphia, there was a TV show, you might have heard of it from this era, called Dance Party USA. And that show was basically the White Soul Train, where a bunch of kids, teenagers, would dance for about an hour on USA Network. And they would dance to a lot of freestyle and sort of post-freestyle music, freestyle being big in Philadelphia as well. And I thought that Let the Music Play was part of that sound. I know that show very well because my older brother was a regular on the show. So we would actually take him down to the studio once a month to do the episodes. I was actually on an episode of Dance Party USA, unbelievably enough. So I always thought that this song sort of lived in that environment. But to hear that it's from 83, that's unbelievable. I mean, this is really ahead of its time. Yeah, and I mean, as a kid, I remember bands like the Jets, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam, uh, DeBarge, and then, you know, a little bit even, like, I guess after that, like Lionel Richie. When Expose. Sort of, Expose. Uh, and then even like Gloria Stefan. Like, these were the artists that were, like, topping the charts. These were Hot 100 artists. And it's like, you cannot listen to those songs and not hear how much they borrowed from this and how much influence this has. I mean, it really is amazing that like to your point that this came out in 1983 and that there are songs that we're going to likely be talking about in 87, 88 and 89 that are still going to be in existence and at the top of the hot 100 because of this kind of sound. Yeah, and, and the fact that you're building and building so much, again, of those layers of synth keyboards and the drum machines and the bass machines. You know, I've looked at YouTube videos of people who still have these old Roland, you know, bass machines and things like that and drum machines and they're programming this very sound and you're programming one layer on top of a second, on top of a third, on top of a fourth, on top of a fifth. It's not your old school live instrumentation in the studio. I mean, we talked so much about the evolution from 
doing the song live and sort of recording it later for album reasons or for single reasons to actually recording it live in studio for the album, for the single first, before you take it out on the tour to this era of incredible studio work with instruments where it's, you know, your Boston's and your Bruce Springsteen's who are putting together these impeccable multi-layered, multi-segmented tracks. And now here you are with a guy who's got a bunch of machines and just programming them, pushing buttons and creating music out of it and creating this very full, very rich sound that is going to define music. It is unbelievable to think that there's one person who can do all of this with just one or two machines. Uh, I mean, there's just so much going on to it uh, and so much, I'll say noise, but I mean that in the kindest possible way, because there's just so much sort of sound going to it. But as you said, it's so structured and it all works together and all the pieces play off one another. And it creates this sort of perfect blend of the dance music and the pop music. And, and, you know, it's, you have to harp on the point, but it just, it sets this tone for what is going to become uh, the chart topping hits of the 1980s. And unlike a lot of the influential, like Planet Rock, unlike those influential dance tracks, this one has a very relatable lyric. This is a lyric essentially about a woman on the dance floor who sees a guy and wants to dance with him and wants to fall in love with him that night. And he's getting closer, but then he then there's another woman dancing with him and her heart's broken, but then he comes back to her. That is something that I think almost everyone can relate to. They We've been in dances even as little kids and have wanted to dance with that one person and we got close and it didn't happen and we felt really heartbroken. That's what this is about. So relatable, so perfect, a great dance smash. Tenth nominee. This is, of course, Cindy Lauper. Time after time from October of 1983. Not Girls Just Want to Have Fun. We talked about this a lot leading up to this. We originally had Girls Just Want to Have Fun in the list. We took it out and then we decided to put Time After Time in. Why Time After Time? I mean, we know why, but why, Chris? <laughs> I, this is absolutely, hands down, my favorite song in the 1983 list. And my initial reaction when we were sort of going through was, well, Girls Just Want to Have Fun was this sort of big, iconic 80s hit. And then you go back and you listen to these again, and it is. And her performance is terrific and sort of reclaiming a song uh, that belonged originally to somebody else is brilliant. But this is one of those that is, it's like, it could be a standard. It could be Mm -hmm. one of these things that was written in the 20s that everybody's been doing. It is such a beautifully written song. And then on top of that, I think that this recording of it and everything that goes into it is also, you know, damn near perfect. And it's just, uh, it. this is one that it's, again, I've talked about this a lot, but it's like, if this came out today and you heard this for the first time, you'd be like, wow, that's really good. It's just like, anytime you hear this, uh, it just, it it's just beautiful. Totally agreed. 
Cynthia Ann Lauper was born in Brooklyn in 1953. Always in the music, she sang lead for several area cover bands, most prominently Doc West, a band that played disco tracks as well as classic rock staples, including several Janis Joplin songs. Cindy was not content to just sing covers, though, and was looking to do her own thing. In the late 70s, she formed a band called Blue Angel and actually turned down a few offers to become a solo artist because she wanted to keep the band together. That band would break up, though, and Lopper's voice caught the ear of several recording studios. She would sign with Portrait Records and recorded She's So Unusual, an eclectic mix of covers and originals. Lopper gave the covers her own spin, including Prince's When You Were Mine and the lead track, The Brains' Money Changes Everything. Most famous, of course, was her turn on Robert Hazard's Girls Just Want to Have Fun, written and first performed by Robert Hazard. And then this one, Time After Time, which she co-wrote with Rob Hyman of a Philadelphia rock band, The Hooters. Hyman also shares vocals with Lauper, mostly background. Time After Time contributed to this pretty awesome fact. Lauper was the first female solo artist to have four consecutive top five songs from the same album. This was her only number one from the album. The whole album is terrific. I mean, there's so many great songs on it. I agree with you. This is, a, it's a classic. It is It is very much on the short list of those songs that almost anyone could cover and absolutely slay. But Lopper does it so well. This is such a great performance. And instrumentally, even with all these 80s flourishes, it is done in such a sophisticated way. It's beautiful. This is the one that lasts from this album. I mean, it's it's a no-doubter on this list. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the album because it is such a great album. And there's a lot that was going on around, uh, you know, 83, 84, 85, where MTV and others were sort of trying to pit Cyndi Lauper against Madonna. And, you know, I guess mild spoiler alert because we're getting to the end. We ended up not doing anything from Madonna's first album on this list. And... It like Cindy Lauper, to her credit, always was in interviews would say that was just ridiculous. Like we're both making great music, but there is this. I feel like this album in particular is one of those that's gotten sort of swamped in '80s, you know, sort of retrospectives, and doesn't get the credit that it deserves from being sort of well done. Uh, her performances are incredible, and the songs that she wrote are great. But then the ones that she sort of covers the Prince song and then uh, money changes everything. And again, girls just want to have fun are so good. It's like, it's a masterpiece from start to finish. And I just think it works. Uh, you know, it, it works so well. I think this is it. It, it if anything, despite its popularity at the time. And as you said, having so, so many huge hits, I think it's become underappreciated. And I think it's because of this sort of weird sort of media narrative to try to compare her to sort of other artists of that time. This is a very kind of simple, melody and chord structure kind of blues based even sort of the roots are, are very much in that old school blues but the drum beat which does seem to play like a ticking clock and there's talk about clocks in this song and the 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 drum beats out of time and that kind of thing there's just this very you know it really matches what the lyric sheet we've said that a couple of times in this episode where there are records that match the lyric sheet really well and this does this perfectly from deep inside The drum beats out of time If you're lost, you can look and you will find me Time after time If you fall, I will catch you, I'll be waiting Time after time 
and you also have just this great synth bed that lies underneath the whole song, kind of like an organ. And I don't know if that's a deliberate move to make it sound like that, or if it's like, you know, just kind of they're playing with the sounds and that's what worked for the record. But it does create this sound that is unlike anything else from this era. You don't hear anything that sounds like an organ in 1983, but it does lend itself to being sort of that timeless sound, you know, timeless time after time. It all kind of fits. Yeah. And I think that uh, Philly's own Rob Hyman deserves a lot of credit for this as well, as I love his lyrical delivery, where it's like he's not quite harmonizing with her. He's sort of singing offbeat. And it there are points where it does almost sound like a duet. And there's this idea of them both uh, sort of conveying, uh, you know, maybe two sides of relationship. And that's what to me gives this sort of an amazingly mature vibe to it where it could be you can listen to it and you could be about it saying like uh you know one person is saying to the other one like i will always be there when you need to come back for me and that could be something about the beginning of a relationship and this is going to last but don't worry if you're having you know second thoughts i will be there or it could be something about marriage or it could be about a breakup there are all these sort of ways that it can be interpreted and you know, I think the story is they were both sort of going through tough times in a relationship and they sort of put this down, but it, it leaves open, uh, it leaves the lyrics open to interpretation. It's not trying to sort of be heavy handed, but I love the way that his vocals come in so that it's sort of two people looking at it from the same side. And again, uh, this version is just, uh, just beautiful. So many great covers of it. I am partial to Willie Nelson. He does this so well is across the borderline album, which is kind of a completely different take. I think on that sort of point about it, I think it's coming at it much more from sort of this, you know, older, wiser, sage kind of end of a relationship thing. But uh, I mean, like, like you said, just great bones. And it's one that can be interpreted a lot of ways. There's a black man with black hair. There's a woman in the kitchen. All right, time to play one of these things is not like the others. Our 11th nominee from 1983, it's John Cougar Mellencamp. Pink Houses. Oh, but ain't that America for you and me? Ain't that America something to see, baby? Ain't that America home of the free? This has to be right up your alley, right, Chris? <laughs> Got uh, a Midwestern you know guy, <laughs> Americana. I mean, I love Mellencamp. I mean, who doesn't love Mellencamp? I mean, he's yeah, like I, a progress. Uh, he's a progressive Democrat from the Midwest. <laughs> What's I, not I, to like? I, I will say I saw him live open up for Bob Dylan some years ago. Dylan has his usual, like, is he good? Is he not good kind of show? I usually don't mind Dylan at all, but Mellencamp was great opening for him. I was really, uh, I became a Mellencamp. I became a cougar convert that night. (laughs) I've actually never seen Mellencamp in concert. Kind of surprising. Uh, I actually, at the beginning when we were doing the intro, I sort of made a list. I was going to do sort of a thing about, you know, the bands that I didn't see in concert. And I have seen New Order. I have seen uh, The Violent Femmes. And I have seen U2 on, God, probably 
close to a dozen times, but I've never seen Mellencamp. What are my regrets here? Well, we're tied then. I've seen you two, the police and Mellencamp, and I think that's it from this group. Anyways, John Mellencamp, born in Seymour, Indiana, 51, formed his first band when he was 14, married at 18, and became a father at 20. Got trashed while in college, but came out of it sober and stayed that way. Throughout the 70s, he tried to make it, was rebranded as Johnny Cougar, mostly because his name and image was so white bread. His first album was 1976's Chestnut Street Incident, which is a little too on the nose as a Springsteen knockoff. In fact, Mellencamp can be seen as the heartland Springsteen, but more on that later. The Kid Inside was meant to come out in 77, but was rejected by his manager. Getting a new manager, Mellencamp, still Cougar, came out with a biography in 78, but only in the UK and Australia. That gave the world the very cool single, I Need a Lover, and thanks to that, he'd get another US album in 79 as John Cougar. That also included I Need a Lover. Did I say it was cool? That song rocks. Then came 1980's Nothing Matters and What If It Did, which is a fun album title, and it gave him a few U.S. chart hits, but next up was 82's American Fool. That begat the breakout smash Jack and Diane, plus Hurt So Good and Hand to Hold On To. He followed that up with Uh Uh-Huh, which is this album. Pink Houses is the second song on the album, inspired by a drive Mellencamp was taking en route to Bloomington, Indiana. He saw an old black man sitting outside a shotgun pink house, and that was it. I think you can read into this a whole number of different ways. I don't know what Mellencamp was really trying to get at, but I will bring my own theories to the table that I think this is a very progressive song about structural racism and structural class sort of dynamics in America in the 1980s. A very interesting song that sort of kicks off this whole new era of 80s rock music. Yeah, and you can find a lot of interviews with Mellencamp, uh, I mean, up to really recently within the last couple of years, where he's talked about that he doesn't like the last verse of this because he kind of wishes he would have come up with something clever to tie everything together. And, you know, and I think that's exactly what you're getting at is there might have been some sort of overarching uh, you know, this is really, you know, th- some sort of statement about this is what he was trying to get across. I actually kind of like the way that it works because I think it does sort of let you be smart and it doesn't do what I like to call the, you know, the over Spielbergization of something where when you watch a Spielberg movie, it's like he tells you what he's going to tell you. He tells you, then he tells you what he told you. And <laughs> this song basically tells you a story and then lets you go from there what you think that means. Well, there's people and more people. What do they know, no, no? Go to work in some high rise and vacation down at the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, yeah. And there's winners and there's losers. But that ain't no big deal. Cause a simple man, baby, pays the Well, I will dive into what I think it means. So the lyric starts with the black man sitting outside his house, and he talks about how there's a highway essentially running right through it. I mean, there are textbooks written about how over the last 70 years of American life, highways were built right in the middle of black neighborhoods in cities across the country as a way to keep housing values down, as a way to ensure that black families could not build up credit and build up value. And 
have more money and amass wealth and be able to have a say in American politics and life. That's racism. That's structural racism right there. There's also lines about these simple people who are the ones who pay all the taxes while there are these middle class, upper middle class, maybe even higher class people who work in these high rises. I think he's talking about yuppies by and large work in high rises and then vacation down in the Gulf of Mexico. So they go down to Western Florida or maybe the Texas Gulf Shore, or Alabama, the Florabama coast, and they don't think about the simple man. They don't think about the working class. They just have their lives. They have blinders on and they go through life with their comfortable lives and whatever. Very smart stuff. And the entire sort of ethos is little pink houses for you and me ain't that America. Is that the American dream? We just want to like end up with a little pink house that's probably worth $85,000 on the market or in 1983, you know, $50,000 on the market, whatever. Or is it more than that? Are we trying to aspire to more? Mellencamp maybe is arguing here that there's so many people in this country who don't have a choice and they're not going to be able to get there. I think it's just such a great lyric. Yeah. And I, I think that pretty much whatever you take from it, it's being, it has been several times misused for political purposes where people will sort of blast that, you know, ain't that America, you know, home of the free type thing and think that it's like this, you know, feel good thing. And it reminds me of born in the USA where obviously politicians will blast born in the USA with no sense of irony (laughs) and think that it's like that. And like, I think this one, the way he delivers it is even more dripping with sarcasm than Springsteen. But I don't necessarily think it's quite as cut and dry as that. Too. Like, And I would say I agree with that completely, that it's like there is part of it where he says, you know, that, you know, this is what you get in America. It's like little pink houses for you and me. And there's could be a reading of that that says, like, everybody gets those little pink houses, right? It's mm-hmm. like there is something that it's like you can sort of, if you Even are romantic. here, if you are there, you can get it. There is that romanticism to it. But then exactly what you said it's like you're capped at the little pink house and most right. of us and many people are capped at the little pink house and you can't ever go above and beyond that. I think that's what he's trying to get at, but I also think he's trying to sort of play it with that part, part about that. It's not sort of overly cynical that it is this kind of way of like, it is not, it doesn't quite match with my own personal <laughs> politics <laughs> all the way in the way it's like, it's got a little bit more to it than it is like, there is this sort of underlying good to it that we're all going to get that. It's just sort of lamenting the cap, if you will. Well, and that's a tenant of the heartland rock genre that really starts coming of age here with this song and this era and this, this year, you know, Springsteen kind of started the whole thing. You could argue whether he started it with Darkness at the Edge of Town or he started it with The River or Nebraska. I think Nebraska is probably the most likely place where that really started to form that more stripped down acoustic sound and talking about some really heavy crap, right? Melon Camp just kind of puts a little bit more of a pop oomph onto it. And this genre is going to carry through the 80s as sort of the antithesis of new wave and the synth pop and the new wave dance that's really big on the charts. This is going to have a lot of good chart presence, too, in the 80s. Mellon Camp is going to ride that. Springsteen's going to ride it. Some other artists will ride it. But the best songs from this genre, like Pink Houses, like some of Springsteen's stuff from Born in the USA, really do cut to the middle of what is really happening in America, especially during Reagan's America, those things that are hard to talk about are hard to really put out there in the mainstream. 
and yet they're able to get out there and still be celebrated and romanticized by a lot of Americans because maybe just people don't see through it completely. It's 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 really great. The lyric is really most of the reason why this is, I think, here, but it is a really nicely performed song, and Mellow Camp brings a great vocal to it. Uh, you know, it, this to me is once we put it on the list, it was like, oh, this is a no brainer. All right, our final nominee. I hope my sister listens to this episode because if she does, she will immediately go to the website and vote for this song. It is, of course, Van Halen with Jump from the very end of So will we get flack for this? This is from the 1984 <laughs> album. This song, this album is very much thought of as 1984, but it did come out in December of 83, literally the last two weeks of the year. It's what we do on Hall of Songs. We have to go by the year it was released. That's what we decided the rule was going to be. But are we wrong here? No, we're not wrong. This is what we do. I don't think we have, they released this in 1983 to get ready for 84. I mean, if we're going to play the calendar game, you have to actually uh yeah i think you have to do that i mean this is a 1983 release yeah and 84 obviously a loaded year orwell and all this craziness happening and the cold war and we'll get there we'll get there (laughs) the van halen brothers alex and eddie were born in amsterdam moved to pasadena in the early 60s they were in a band called mammoth which changed its name from genesis when it learned that that name was taken already They met David Lee Roth in 1972, rented a sound system from Roth, and at least in part to save money from cutting out the $10 per night fees, asked him to join as lead vocalist. In 74, after changing the name to Van Halen, which according to Roth was his idea, Michael Anthony Sobolewski came on board as bassist. He would just go on as Michael Anthony from that point on. By 1975, they were a staple of LA Sunset strip music scene, playing clubs like the Whiskey A Go-Go. The legendary Ted Templeman, who was looking for a guitar hero act, saw them perform at the Starwood and signed them to Warner Brothers. Van Halen was a notoriously raucous live act and essentially toured nonstop. They spent no more than two weeks in the studio to record each of their first five studio albums. Van Halen, 78. Van Halen, 2, 79. Women and Children, first, 80. Fair Warning, 81. And Diver Down, 82. At the time on the road led to tensions within the band, especially between Eddie and Roth. In fact, in 82, they intended to release just a single, a cover of Roy Oberson's Oh, pretty woman, and then take a break. But Warner convinced them to stick around and record the rest of Diver Down. In 83, they returned to the studio, this time at Warner Brothers' newly built 
5150 Studios and recorded in 1984. It was a variation of sorts. Eddie focused on adding keyboards over the guitar rock of their prior albums, and it would be a smash, reaching number two on the album charts, kept off a number one by Thriller, and spawning four hit singles. Jump was the biggest, released ahead of the album in late 83. It would be the band's only number one hit with Roth on vocals. He would leave the band following the tour in support of 84 to embark on a solo career, misguided, I think. And of course, he would soon thereafter be replaced by Sammy Hagar. So are you an I'm just a gigolo hater? <laughs> no, who who can hate that? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> or his California Girls cover? Come on. Oh, man. David Lee Roth is a special breed. I <laughs> I will tell you that I am firmly in the Van Hagar camp. I like Van Hagar better, but I'm a pop guy. Oh, see, I mean, there's no way I could separate Van Halen from David Lee Roth. Uh, As I said, like my sister and I with our family friends used to act out this album from start to finish and make our parents sit and watch us where I mostly dealt with the I was the uh, the David Lee Roth character in our little performance and would come, you know, flying over our fake speaker, which would be whatever cardboard box we could come you know, come up with at the time. And we would perform this for whatever it is, like 48 minutes from start to finish the entire 1984 (laughs) album. So I am sure my parents have heard this way more times than they would like to. You, you performed drop dead legs and hot for teacher. I mean, (laughs) me lip syncing hot for teacher at about the age of eight. It's like, I wish there was video of this. This is the only time (laughs) I regret there not being cell phones in like 1984, 85. So that's what you have. And I have dance party USA. Okay, there we go. I mean, this is, uh, look, it's a very popular song. I don't know if it's extremely influential, only in that the synth is everywhere. Keyboards are everywhere now in 1983. And I think finally, Jump symbolizes it really taking over rock, like hard rock. Van Halen is the biggest hard rock band going into 83. They've had all these huge guitar rock songs. And here they are with this synth song that sounds like a UFO is crashing down that opening. You know, I love the beginning of this album from the 1984 title track to jump and how it just sort of sounds like a UFO coming down. This is, I mean, a big sound arena ready. It is the biggest band in the world, potentially, you know, uh, along with the police and a couple others, like they are as big as it gets doing this huge sound with these keyboards and it works. And it's and it symbolizes that you know the keyboards are going to dictate rock music even for the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I have had some regret that we haven't had more Van Halen on before. That this is the first Van Halen song that we've gotten to, and that when we do get to it, that it's a song that kicks off with the synth, and that it doesn't have like this killer, you know, Eddie Van Halen riff at the start. Though the the guitar solo here is great and it works. But I think that this is giving them some credit in a lot of ways for doing something that was new and really pushing music in a direction that was going to go in the 80s. I mean, uh, there's so much good stuff from, I mean, it's like there there are just absolute classics on so many of the early albums, but a lot of them, it's like some of the ones that sound the best and hold up are covers. And then some of the other stuff, it's like there are these great sort of album tracks that really hold up, but there's nothing I think that did quite what this track in particular did which was to sort of say hey this is like you know hard rock and roll music we're going to add this synth to it we're going to push it on to something that is you know that is new and it 
again, it's sort of funny, as you said, we're talking about in 1983 when it's from an album called 1984, but it is heralding what's coming next. And I think it's great that it's the last track of 83 for that reason, that it is kind of saying like, boom, this is something that's on the horizon. We're doing this. Nobody has quite done this before. And uh, I love it. I mean, again, it's like, this was one of those that's sort of inextricably linked to my childhood but uh i just such a fun fun track Yeah, and can we just mention that the synth work really is great in here? It's actually kind of rudimentary to me when compared to some of the synth work that we're hearing with a new order with Eurythmics, where it's this very layered, you know, synth sound that's just both textural and melodic. Whereas here, it's really just this, it's this kind of sharp sound that sort of creates the rhythm, but it's still really, really strong, right? You have a great solo by Eddie Van Halen where he is just playing it, playing it like it's a guitar, but almost kind of playing it like it's a big piano solo too. He's a gifted musician. I mean, that's one thing I think, you know, I'm, I still kind of floors me that he's gone, that he passed away not too long ago. But just how genius a musician he was. He could do anything and what an incredible force he was. But this is a great song. And it's it's just recognizable. It is it's undeniable. I don't think there's anybody on earth who can hate this song. Um, we could have nominated one or two other songs from this very album. Panama is terrific. Uh, Hot for Teacher is a lot of fun. I don't know if it's necessarily a nominee, <laughs> but I mean this is this is a great album. It's terrific. But I mean this this song right here is Van Halen at the peak of their powers, not doing what they're usually used to, but still doing it at a high level, whatever they're doing, despite the lyrics, which I always thought the lyric was, i.e. the ones that you've seen and not I ain't the ones that you've seen. I thought David Lee Roth was being a lot more clever than I gave him credit. Yeah, I think that was a mistake on your part. I mean, I guess the story of this (laughs) is that he saw somebody who was apparently just working, not going to jump at the top of a building and thought that like people will probably yell at that guy to jump. That's how sick and twisted we all are. It's like, I should write a song about that. Then they went in the studio and they said, you can't just write a song about that. You got to kind of make it fun. So he just added a bunch of nonsense and made it so that it's like, (laughs) it's about jumping into life. As he said, when it's really just him kind of yelling like, Hey, who, Hey, ho. Who said that? (laughs) It's like, it's great. I mean, this is like fitting in with the, the lyrical, uh, content of a lot of these songs this is one of those that i don't think there's a lot of depth to them but that's okay all right so jump by van halen is our final nominee from 1983 those are the nominees in total let's go through them one more time they are sweet dreams are made of this by eurythmics sunday bloody sunday by u2 true by spandau ballet blue monday by new order Between the Sheets by the Isley Brothers. Blister in the Sun by Violet Fenn. Every Breath You Take by The Police. This Must Be the Place Naive Melody by Talking Heads. Let the Music Play by Shannon. Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper. Pink Houses by John Cougar Mellencamp. And Jump by Van Halen. So, between 
June 12th and June 19th, you can go to hallofsongs.com and vote for the songs that you think are worthy of the hall. The ballot will include those songs, plus the Veterans Committee songs that we recently put on that list. In the air tonight by Phil Collins. Uh, what else is there? 38 specials in there. We uh, have Jesse's Girl and Jesse's Sexual Girl, Healing. Sexual Healing. So four songs from the Veterans Committee, plus songs from past episodes that stayed on the ballot because they got enough percentage points to stay on go to hallofsongs.com and vote between june 12th and june 19th we will come back with a recap show on june 24th chris what else from 83 did we consider or not put on the ballot and wanted to mention uh there's so many good stuff uh karma chameleon by culture club Huge, huge song of, you know, uh, that of the era. Love that song. Great pop song. Uh, another uh, one of those Duran Duran, the reflex, uh, the seven and the ragged tiger album. There are a lot of good songs from that one. Uh, I will just quickly mention uh, two songs by the, the sticking with the British uh, theme. This is the day. And then my personal favorite, which I'm not sure it's quite nominee worthy. And I understand why, but uncertain smile, just an, epic epic sort of uh you know track that almost that sort coda. of like heralds like jam bands and things like that it's got the best uh you know other than fish songs where trey yells to page play it leo it's got like the best piano part of all time uh, i mean it's a wild song and i can't believe it came out in 83 i absolutely love that song and i love that entire album from start to finish couple on my end kind of the start of the modern boy band movement candy girl by new edition Rock of Ages by Def Leppard, that in Photograph from their Pyromania album. Really great stuff there. I love to talk about orchestral maneuvers in the dark, genetic engineering. They had their Dazzle Ships album that year. It's a weird album, but I really like genetic engineering as the potential nominee from that group. Algero's Morning. Why not? Why not? That's a fun song. Crazy video. Radio Free Europe by R.E.M., and I'll also mention Overkill by Men at Work. Men at Work is a really interesting band. I used to think they were just the police from Australia trying to do the police sound. But dig into them, and they really have a great catalog. That Cargo album, which this is on, Overkill is on, is terrific. I have it on vinyl. Overkill is a tremendous little song about anxiety, and it's got a great dynamic to it. Uh, Colin Hayes' vocals are terrific, so... Check that out if you ever get a chance. Oh, one more I have to mention, because I think I mentioned it a little bit in a previous episode. I think it was in our Veterans Committee episode. Message to My Girl by Split Ends. One of my favorite songs of all time. All right. So our next episode will be a recap show. I think that'll be our next. No, we have. We're going to do a special episode, actually. We're going to do a special 1984 episode before the 84 main episode. That'll come out next week look for that on july 19th so check that out then but we will have our recap show on july 24th we'll have our 84 show on july 26th uh so tell the people tell the people who who's who's responsible for the fun stuff that you do for our podcast so who do we have to thank we have to thank stock music media for our theme song which uh uh, changes every decade. And I uh, love the 80s one. I've gotten a lot of compliments on that. And we have to thank Aaron Delashmutt. Although as we record this, he is vacationing in Tuscany. So, you know, oh, ho, ho. Uh, uh, for doing all of our logo work for both this and modern songs. So thank you to Mutt uh, and enjoy Tuscany.
Can you ask him if there are any rooms to rent in Tuscany? I can ask him that, yes. Uh, do, do you get that reference? I do, yes. Okay, good. Okay, good. Uh, thanks to those guys. And thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate having you here as our episodes get ever longer. We apologize for that. But we love talking about this stuff. What can I say? All right. We'll be back next week with a special bonus episode, uh, a preview of 1984. Until then, this is Hall of Songs. I'm Tim. I'm Chris. Prove me wrong. Well, I'm frightened by the word.